Friends, I'm going to invite you this morning to uh, open your Bible with me to Psalm 23. To Psalm 23. And this time of year really is a time of year where we, um, coming out of the new year, many new year resolutions and things. If you see the commercials on TV, you'll see they focus on resolutions for finances, resolutions for uh, for health and fitness and any number of things. But it is a time of year in which we pause and we reflect for a bit. Pastor Paul spoke on that some uh, last week on just that time where we pause, we reflect over the past, we make plans to go forward. And during the, the Christmas, New Year's stretch, I did like many of you do, that window between, that week between uh, Christmas and New Year, I try to pause and just to slow down and take some time off to slow down. And, and in those times of slowing down, much like I hope many of you do when you take a vacation or you take time away, is that you try to change up your rhythm a little bit and catch up on rest, catch up on perhaps some reading, and catch up on just perhaps some family time, any number of things. And uh, what I've often done in those times when I, when I try to pause and, and take a rest, take, take a break, is to change up my rhythm a little bit on a lot of things. Um, typically on, through the week and even on the weekends with, with eight kids in the home, if you want a quiet space, we have to get up earlier and kind of beat someone to the quiet room or wherever there might be space. And once the house is alive and awake, there really isn't much space for quiet. And so what I've found is that but in, when you move into times of uh, perhaps time off, time away, what you try to do is you try to, I know, catch up on rest. And so, but it's hard if you're trying to get up ahead of all the kids and then the same time trying to get some quiet space, but then at the time, same time trying to catch up on rest. And so one of the things that I'll do is I'll not only change up my rhythm of, of getting up, those kind of things, and just getting some rest, but I'll also change up my rhythm of where I've been reading, where I've been spending time in God's Word. I'm rather disciplined on where I go, what I'm reading, what I'm studying, but whenever I take some time off, I often fall into the Psalms or go into the Proverbs, and the, many of the Psalms talk about just resting and being restored in the God and just being renewed inwardly in His presence. And so I did that. I did that this past, um, this past time with a few days off, and I spent some time looking through both the Psalms and Proverbs, and my goal really in those moments is to cover less and to think more, to cover less and really to reflect more, and, uh, and really out of perhaps reading less, allowing God to speak more. Sometimes we get so busy on what we want to cover, where we want to read the plan perhaps you're trying to stick with, and just rather slowing down and, and letting God speak to us. And so I wanted to this morning, even though as a church family we're in a series called Expectancy, we're going verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark, we'll pick that up next week. Next week when we begin our time of prayer and fasting, um, we'll, we'll pick up that series next week and continue in it. But this morning I'd love to take a little bit of time to look at Psalm 23. A psalm that's very familiar probably to, to many here, whether you have a Bible or not, whether you read Scripture or not. Many times if you attend a special ceremony, a special service, or even perhaps a funeral, you might hear Psalm 23 read. But it's a, it's a psalm that we look at that really reveals the power of perspective and it reveals a heart of trust. It's a psalm focused on comfort and peace and guidance. And what I'd like to do this morning is to really read all of it through and then come back and read it verse by verse and share with you perhaps just some, some observations and some things that have stood out to me uh, in this passage in recent days and in, in recent weeks. And we can, I think, all each just learn and glean from some of the things that are here. So let's read this together. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. 
Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Just again, a psalm that many may be very familiar with. And it just speaks of, of our Heavenly Father's loving, constant care and guidance in our life. But I'd like to do, again, go back to the very first one and just look at it verse by verse for a few minutes this morning. And again, very different than normal. Normally I'll share the passage, we'll jump into some points, but instead just to share with you some observations. Psalm chapter 23, verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Many times when we read a psalm, we'll jump into it, and, and I will have in my Bible, I'll have a number of verses highlighted, perhaps dates written by them, things underlined, and specific times or places where a verse or two stood out to me. And I'll, many times when I'm reading through a psalm or even just needing to reflect on some things, I'll flip open my Bible and I'll look at some of those things that are highlighted and those things that are written. But when it comes to the psalms, the best way to understand them Many times when we read them, the very first verse sets the tone and the rest of the psalm explains it. The very first verse kind of sets the focus, sets the tone, and the rest of the entire psalm explains it. So verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is. It begins by stating God is present. It's not speaking of past tense. It doesn't speak of future tense. It speaks of that he's present See, our tendency is often to look backward. Our tendency is often to look forward. If, Like me, I've reflected with many. I've said how much we've enjoyed Christmas, how much we've enjoyed New Year. If you've run into people you haven't seen perhaps over that break, you'll say, well, how are the holidays? How was Christmas? How was New Year's? You're looking back. When you walk in the store, you'll find that there's already, uh, there's already um, Valentine's candy and decorations up. When we were at the store on Friday, we, we found Easter candy already out. That there's, we have a tendency to look forward, to really look significantly forward and look towards the next vacation, the next time off, the next break, the next time we see individuals, or we reflect back on how things were. But this passage reminds us to be fully present and recognize that in our moments and in our life, God is fully present, that the Lord is. The primary theme is that regardless of what life brings us, regardless of where we find ourselves, regardless of what happens, God still is. That he exists in the middle of your moments. He exists when in every place that we need him. He is where we find everything that we need. That it's in him we find peace. It's in him we find fulfillment. It's in him we find comfort. Many times in our own lives that we have a very, a very human tendency to focus inward, to focus on ourselves, to focus on our needs. But if you'll notice, nowhere in the psalm is the writer focused on himself. He focuses on challenges, challenges and things that he faces, obstacles and hardships that he encounters. But throughout the entire psalm, his focus is on his heavenly father. He says, because God is present, I have everything that I need. The second part of verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. In some translations, perhaps some that you have, it says, I shall not be in want. The proper rendering, it says, I lack nothing. Because God is, I have everything that I need. To say that I lack nothing really is, is both an observation and a choice. 
It's an observation that when we anchor our heart's needs and our heart's trust in our Heavenly Father, we truly, there will never be a place or a space in life that we will find ourselves lacking. God is faithful and he never leaves us empty-handed. Sometimes we look at the story, we look at the journey, we look at the experience and we reflect on our perspective or what has happened up until that moment. But we forget that in the midst of everything, our loving Heavenly Father is still in control and every single thing we've faced and every single thing that we will face, He is leading us through. And that from His perspective, we have everything we need because we have Him. That it's an observation and it's a choice to be satisfied in Him. Sometimes it's very easy in my own life to get chasing different needs and different wants rather and begin to classify them as needs. But God in his, divine, in his divine wisdom as our loving Heavenly Father looks in your life and he sees what you need and he sees what you want and he promises to be the fulfillment of everything. As you look through this passage through the entire psalm, we'll recognize that with his guidance, he never leaves us empty-handed. And if you look through, most of the verses start with some identification of God's provision. It goes on and it says, he makes me, he leads me, he guides me, he prepares for me, he anoints me, that he meets our every need. The psalmist says in Psalms 34 verse 10, it says, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. That because God is, because he's present, because he's faithful, we lack nothing. It's very similar with this, this focus of keeping the focus on our Heavenly Father and not on ourselves. It's very, focus, very similar to with how Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6.33. He said, but seek first God's kingdom, his purposes, and he, he will attend to our needs. It's a choice to put our focus and our center solely upon our Heavenly Father. Let's look forward. Look in verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He makes me lie down, lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. The psalmist beginning, of course, is, is identifying our Heavenly Father as a loving shepherd guiding his flock. He continues with that imagery. And, and many times when we think of a shepherd with their flock or we think of a flock of sheep, it's very easy to picture it much like we would see in our community where you have a nice pasture, tons of green grass, you have a, a barn full of all the needs, the water that's there. But when we think back to ancient Middle East, when the time of shepherding was being referenced in this, this passage, the region that a shepherd would have his flock in was most often a desert, and it was most often mountainous, and it was most often full of danger. So when a shepherd would bring his flock and he would find a pasture, an area with green grass, or he would bring his flock and he would find a place with water... He was very intentional to identify that, recognize these places, the green grass and the abundant fountains, don't come in abundant supply wherever I need them. In fact, whenever they were done with one source, they would either remember where it was or they would begin to immediately look at where the next source could possibly be. That they recognized that in that moment, it was just enough for the now. When the shepherd brought his flock to the green pasture, he wanted to make sure that they received the nourishment that was offered there. It was just enough for the now. And so he made sure that his flock spent time in the green pasture to receive from it. That's why it says in verse 2, it says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. 
In the first verse, it identified that because God is, we lack nothing, that it's, it's really is a choice to, to recognize that we lack nothing because we have him. But if you'll notice now, it's not, no longer a choice. It's a, it's a direction that he makes me. It's, it's now a forced action. This past year, as we looked through the Gospel of Mark, one of the things that we studied and we identified was understanding the, the biblical, the biblical concept of Sabbath and what that means into our own lives. This rhythm of rest and work and how that fits into our modern lives and into our modern day and what that looks like. And one of the things that we identified is that one way or another, we will have to come to a place where we slow down, where we lie down, and we rest. That we see that God's design and creation includes a pattern of rest. It includes a pattern of pausing and slowing down and enjoying the places of refreshment that he wants to bring into our lives. If we choose to ignore them, then at some point in our lives, it will be forced upon us. That's why it says, he makes me lie down. When you look at, the, at health trends today and you see the number of heart attacks, and the number of things that take place in individuals' lives because they've been overstressed and overworked, that we see that eventually individuals reach a place where they're forced to rest. I was sharing with someone recently over a rather a difficult thing they were walking through, perhaps a difficult lesson they were struggling to learn. And I told them this. I said that I have found with life that most often we get to choose the classroom, but God always chooses the curriculum. We get to choose the classroom, but God most often chooses the curriculum. That means there are lessons that he intends for you and I to learn and for you and me to learn in life, for us to experience in life, and that they're lessons that may very well be repeated until we choose to learn them. And sometimes the classroom may continue to change, and while it may be a reminder of to slow down and rest when, when things are good, there's going to come a point where we're going to learn the hard way the importance of how he brings us to a place to rest and be renewed that he will always bring us to a place of rest one way or another. And in the midst of all of it is his provision and his presence. I think perhaps some of, the, some of the strongest signs that we as a culture have not stopped to enjoy the green pastures or to enjoy the, his presence that, and his renewing presence that he offers us in our lives is when our lives are consumed with worry, anxiety, and stress. Statistics tell us that 40 million Americans will be impaired in some way by anxiety this year. It tells us that 65% of Americans will take some form of medication to deal with levels of anxiety, worry, and fear. I want you to listen, flip with me if you, you can to Matthew chapter 6. And listen what Jesus says about worry. And if you're able to save your place in Psalm 23, we'll be back to that in just a moment. If you listen to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse number 25. It says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body and what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about your clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? 
They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which are here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And it's interesting that Jesus takes time in the midst of his teaching and really what is considered by some to be the, the greatest teaching on earth when you, when you come to the Sermon on the Mount. But he takes time to address the human tendency to worry and to give in to anxiety and to, to fret over things. But when we look at what Jesus is saying, there's a little word that he uses all throughout the passage that I've just read that we can easily miss, and it's the word that's translated for worry in those moments. But the word that Jesus used for worry means to divide something into many little parts, to divide it into hundreds of little parts. And so, and that's exactly what happens to our minds and to our spirits and our strength when we give way to worry. That when you begin to worry over something and you live in that cycle of worry and and constantly worrying and being anxious over something and that that worry turns to anxiety and that anxiety turns to fear, that before long you find your mind and your strength and your energy divided into hundreds of little parts. Worrying about this, worrying about that. What's the answer for here? How is this going to be solved? That it's this dividing of, of your strength and your mind and your peace into many parts so that in the end nothing is resolved and nothing is accomplished and God isn't trusted. See, worry, Corey Tinboom once said, worry is to deal with tomorrow's sorrows without tomorrow's green pastures. God's design is that we choose to be satisfied in him today. A choice to be satisfied in his presence and in his sustaining power today, that we're only truly satisfied in him. That's where verse 3 picks up. It says, he refreshes or he restores my soul he guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. It says that he refreshes or he restores my soul. It's the inward renewing of his presence that's intended to be in our lives each and every day, even in the midst of life and the busyness that life can throw at us and, and the chaos that life can bring, the, the ability to be renewed and restored in him and to have a peace that has been established by him. Isaiah 26.12 rather says, Lord, you establish peace for us. It's not a matter of my circumstances changing that, that establishes peace. It's not a, man, a matter of my anxiety being dealt with that establishes peace. It's not a matter of my worry being, being, being answered to establish peace. The Bible says that peace is established by our Heavenly Father and by Him alone. That He is the one who restores His people. It's the combination of the green pastures and the quiet waters that identifies the refreshing care that God offers his own. That it's the process of slowing down and focusing singularly upon him. And friends, we can't be restored if our souls are always going and busy and always active. In Hosea 14, verse 5, something I've shared with our Wednesday night group that comes out for prayer often in Hosea 14, verse 5, It's describing God's care and his love over his people. And he describes his Holy Spirit among his people as being a dew that settles in the morning. He says that I will be like a dew that settles on the flowers. Describing his presence. 
If you wake up early in the morning, this, obviously in a morning like this, it would be completely frozen. But if you were to wake up on a morning where perhaps a spring morning or a summer morning, you'll go out and you'll notice that everything that was completely stationary and completely still had a dew that had settled over it. That's a reminder that dew only settles on things that, are, that pause and that stop long enough. That is, you're constantly running, constantly going, constantly in motion. You won't have a, the dew of the Holy Spirit to settle on your life. That if you're constantly going in, really, your mind's constantly racing and constantly going. There's, this, there's a renewing that can only be found in his presence that won't be found by any amount of things that you accomplish or do in your day. In Psalms 37, verse 18, it says, The blameless spend their days under the Lord's care. That it's a covering and a canopy and a blanket of his care over your life. During the announcement, uh, Pastor David mentioned of the upcoming days of prayer and fasting. 21 days. Every year as a church, we set aside 21 days for prayer and fasting. And it's not that a matter of we go and we, we declare exactly what every fast for every person is going to look like. But rather, we just encourage individuals to be a part. To be a part of, a, of 21 days of prayer and fasting. And as I mentioned, there's a guide at the Welcome Center that can really help you look at how you can be a part of it. And we really have things there that, that I think every individual, whether young or old or light, can be a part of. And I encourage individuals not only to, to change their eating habits, but also to change their heart habits. Because a fast has more to, far more to do with, with, than just not eating as much as we typically would eat. But rather, it's a disconnecting and it's a tuning our heart more clearly into our Heavenly Father. That it has just as much to do with changing our heart habits as it does to do with our eating habits. It's a time of resting, a time of restoring, a time of reminding, a time of renewing. That at many times, I'll encourage individuals to find some way to digitally disconnect. Perhaps sign off on Facebook for a while or, or limit your time surfing the web. But allow your soul to, to find that stillness once again and to be renewed in God's presence in a way that so much of life does not permit or allow us to. Look in verse 4. It says, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The significant shift takes place as you read this psalm that it's very easy to miss. In the earlier passages, he's been talking about how God is my shepherd, that he makes me lie down, he restores my soul. But in verse 4, when things begin to get difficult, the, the, the language shifts and it becomes very personal. Instead of referencing God that God is the one who does this or he's the one who leads me, instead he says, you're with me. It becomes very personal. That is, the, as, the, as he continues to be led and guided by the presence of God in his life, he recognizes that in the midst of his leading, there are going to be hard places and challenging places, and there's going to be places to be renewed and places to be restored. And in the midst of it, that God's presence is still faithful. That God is an, it's an, it's an imagery that's intimate. And oftentimes, the temptation, when this was written, the, the temptation was for individuals, when they would speak about the God of Israel, they'd talk about just that, the God of Israel, the God who's the God of the nation. And they would forget that the God who's the God of the nation is also the God of the individual, the one who cares about the person. And sometimes I think in our own life, and I know in my life, it's very easy to get busy, and there's church and life and ministry and family and all these things, and, and in so many different things, we can talk about God, and it's very easy. I can remember specifically growing up and going to church, and we're going to church, we're going to worship God there, we're going to church, we're going to learn about God there. And I had to slow down and remind myself is that 
when we gather together in a place like this and we worship God and we learn about God in Scripture, that yes, God's presence is here. He promises to be here. But the same God who meets us in moments like this is also the very personal God who meets you in, your own, in his own stillness and in your own way when you get still before him. But he's the same God who wants to meet you in your home. He's the same God who wants to meet you in your challenges. He wants to meet you in your difficulty. He wants to meet you where your marriage is. He wants to meet you where your parenting is. He wants to meet you where your kids are. He wants to meet you in your finances. That he's not just a God who's big and distant and one we learn about, but he's a God who's intimate. He's a father who's personal. He's a God who gets involved in our lives and cares about the details of our lives. He says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And when I, when I read this psalm, it, it began with, he's my shepherd, he's guiding me, he's leading me. As I looked through this and I began to realize, it occurred to me that his leading brings me through some very interesting places. It says, I'm to trust him leading me, but yet in his leading, which verse 3 says are the right paths, it says in his leading, I end up in what the psalmist describes as being the, the darkest valley or the valley of the shadow of death. Verse 5, he talks about being in the presence of your enemies, people who want to destroy, people who want to kill. But in the midst of all of this, though, he's identified that God's led him there. That in God's leading, in the Father's leading, he has been led to places that are not places of his own choosing, nor are they places of our own choosing. Near-death experiences, sitting across from your enemy, places that God chooses to lead us through, places and spaces and desert places that are difficult. And the question that I find when I read that, and I think it's a question that perhaps we may ask ourselves and perhaps even pose to God on a number of occasions when we face the hard places and the difficult places, is the question is, if he is leading and can see ahead, why is he leading me through this place? That if our Heavenly Father truly is leading, and as the leader, as the one who cares, and he is leading ahead and guiding ahead, then why do I still end up in the valley of the shadow of death? Or why do I still end up in having a banquet in the presence of my enemies? And I would suggest that God chooses to lead us through places we most want to avoid in order to produce results in us we most desperately need. That he chooses to lead us through places we would not choose on our own, but to, to produce results in our lives that he realizes we need for the future. See, what lies ahead in your life matters just as much as what lies within. And he wants to deal with the heart just as much as he wants to deal with your future. And it's a willingness to trust him and allow him to lead and guide wherever he chooses to lead. Listen to what James Montgomery Boyce in reflection on the Psalms, he says this. He says, it's important to note that the valley of the shadow of death is as much God's right path for us as the green pastures which lie beside quiet waters. That is, the Christian life is not always tranquil nor, as we say, a mountaintop experience. God gives us valleys also. It is in the valleys with the trials and dangers that we develop character. So 1 Peter 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says that the Lord knows how to rescue his own. It was referencing Lot and, and just a, an unrighteous, uh, horrible situation he was in and how God stepped in and rescued him. It says the Lord knows how to rescue his own. And when I look at that, that reminds me is that not only does God know how to rescue his own, but he knows how to lead his own. That he knows how to lead and guide your life. 
far more than our perspective may perhaps allow us to see, that what lies ahead has just as much to do with what lies within. And when we look through Scripture, you'll notice that many times God used desert seasons and barren places and difficult places to begin to form and forge some of the great men and women of God that he used through Scripture. When you look at Joseph, he invested years as a slave and years in a dungeon, but yet God was positioning him and dealing with matters within so that when the moment came, he could be positioned in the right place and ultimately God could use him in a significant way. When you look at the life of Jesus, much of his life was tucked away, away from the public eye, allowing God to work and to the, God the Father to continue to work in his life. So in those three years, he was able to ultimately alter history. When you look through the prophets and you look through many other men and women in Scripture, you'll find that they spent many years tucked away out of the public eye, really in desert and difficult places, allowing God to deal with matters within that ultimately began to shape and form them for who they were in the moments we see of them in Scripture. About two years ago, I had shared with you as a church out of a book called Anonymous by Alicia Britt Choll. And it's a book that a number of years ago I had found when um, really before we were even here at State College Assembly. And we had uh, we'd just been going through transition times in our lives and trying to understand how our Heavenly Father was working in the midst of them. And there's a, there's a short section in here I wanted to read to you. I, I mentioned it. I read it to the church about two years ago. Um, it's just a reminder of God's faithfulness in the midst of wherever we're at. And I wanted to read it to you again this morning. It's a little bit of a, a lengthy section, but I, I hope that you'll bear with me. She writes, what the, what the plenty of summer hides, the nakedness of winter reveals infrastructure. Fullness of life often distracts from foundations. But in the stillness of winter, the tree's truth, true strength is unveiled. Stripped of decoration, the tree trunks become prominent. In winter, are trees bare? Yes. In winter, are trees barren? No. Life still is. Life does not sleep, though in winter she retracts all advertisement. And when she does, does so, she is conserving and preparing for the future. And so it is with us. Seasonally, we too are stripped of visible fruit. Our giftings are hidden. Our abilities are underestimated. When previous successes fade and current efforts falter, we can easily mistake our fruitfulness, our fruitlessness for failure. But such is the rhythm of spiritual life. New growth, fruitfulness, transition, rest. New growth, fruitfulness, transition, rest. Abundance may make us feel more productive, but perhaps emptiness has greater power to strengthen our souls. In spiritual winters, our fullness is thinned so that, undistracted by our giftings, we can focus upon our character. In the absence of anything to measure, we are left with nothing to stare at except our foundation. Risking inspection... We begin to examine the motivations that support our deeds, the attitudes that influence our words, the dead wood otherwise hidden beneath our busyness. Then a life-changing transition occurs as we move from resistance to repentance to a place of rest. With gratitude, we simply abide. Like a tree planted by living water, we focus upon our primary responsibility, remaining in him. In winter, are we bare? Yes, in winter, are we barren? No. True life still is. The Father's work in us does not sleep, though in spiritual winters he retracts all advertisement. And when he does so, he is purifying our faith, strengthening our character, conserving our energy, and preparing us for the future. The sleepy days of winter hide us 
so that the, the, so that the seductive days of summer will not ruin us. And then adding to that, she writes, from God's perspective, wilderness or difficult places or valleys of the shadows of death, are, those seasons are sacred spaces. They are quite literally formative, to be rested in, not rushed through, and most definitively, never to be regretted. Unapplauded but not productive, these seasons are the surprising birthplace of true spiritual greatness. That in every place, we have a choice to trust him. In every season you face, you have a choice to trust him. That is why the psalmist writes in Psalm 23 that that he says, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That it's a reminder that in the midst of everything, he still is. He is still faithful and he is still in control. In, in the Passion Translation, um, a, a translation that some friends had given me a f- couple of years ago, verse 4 translates this way. It says, your authority is my strength and my peace. It's trusting his control and trusting his timing and trusting his way. One of the, the Proverbs that um, I remember memorizing growing up, I think it was in fact one one of my parents had, um, had encouraged me to memorize is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. It says, in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Or some translations say, in all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. Let us reminder that in in all of our journeys, that we, we, we submit, we acknowledge him in all we do, but make it about him, that it's his work in our lives. But oftentimes, and many times over the years, as I would look at that verse, and I would reflect on that verse, and I would say where it says to submit to him and all we do, that he'll make my path straight, and I'll just think about God's working, and ultimately the path is going to be so clear and obvious, and it's going to be a nice straight line. But life tells us that it's not a nice straight line. And when you look at the way the the language is written in the passage, it's actually not even referencing to being a nice straight line in life. But instead of saying that it will make our path straight, the, the way it's translated in Hebrew is more accurately rendered. It says it will be a well-traveled path. Not necessarily a straight path, but a well-worn path and well-seen. And that well-worn path in our lives may involve dark valleys and journeys that we would not choose on our own. But it's all framed in one simple word, trust. Trusting our Heavenly Father in the midst of everything that He's doing. Trusting His timing, trusting His control, trusting His ways. Let's read on in verse 5. It says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. It says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. We already talked about His guiding hand in difficult places in our lives but it says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Oftentimes in this day and in this culture, when an individual would come to a banquet hall and would come to a place to receive a great meal, that the host would, would meet the guests at the door. And before they entered, they would, they would really anoint their head with oil. They would pour oil over their head. And that anointing was a way of honoring the guests. And that oil that was poured over them had, um, was added with perfume to olive oil so that it was really fragrant. It was, it was really just a way of blessing and a way of, of honoring the guests when they came home or came to the, to the meal. But if you look in verse 5, the place where it's being anointed is taking place. The picture is of a, of a gracious host in care, but it's in a place at an enemy's banquet hall where it would not be offered and not be extended. 
And as our hearts choose to respond to our Heavenly Father correctly, oftentimes His anointing and His grace will rest upon our lives in difficult places and will bring a new understanding and appreciation of His blessing and favor in our lives. That even in the midst of an enemy's banquet hall, that it may be an anointing of His presence that rests upon your life. The Apostle Paul talks about this in the New Testament. He references times in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 specifically. He talks about a time where he was going through such a hard place and a hard time where he said, it, it felt as if I had a death sentence hanging over my life, he said. But he said, but that, that pressure that came over my life caused me to understand a new sense of his nearness, a new sense of his sustaining power in his life. Later in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul talks about this such difficult place where he's at such a weak place. But he came to realize that it was at that weakest place that he recognized that God's grace and strength were sufficient and were more than enough for him in that moment. Later in 2 Timothy, in some of the last words the Apostle Paul ever pens, he's sitting alone in a prison cell and he says that he's writing to his associate Timothy and he says, everyone has abandoned me. But in my emptiness and in my loneliness in the cell, I came and found a new intimacy and a nearness of Christ coming close to me that I wouldn't have found any other way. It's a recognizing that even in the difficult places, the places that we would not choose to go, the places where the well-worn path takes us, that in the midst of those challenging places and those places that we would not end up, that there's an anointing and a favor of God that can rest upon our lives as we continually keep our hearts trusting in him. But there's an additional benefit of this anointing that would be put on an individual when they would come through the door. It was an unintentional benefit, but it was a benefit nonetheless. Many times in, in the ancient Middle Eastern culture, one of the ways that they would deal with parasites, specifically head lice, is they would douse the head with oil. That they would cover them with oil to the point where their, their head was dripping with oil, it was covered with oil, and ultimately it would smother and kill the parasites. If you know anything about a parasite, you realize that a parasite is not intended to kill the host organism, but to steal the full potential of life and to drain off life. That it's a realization that sometimes God is going to lead us through places that we would not choose to go, places we would not want to be in, but places that he offers us his sustaining presence in the midst of it. And in the midst of it, in his sustaining presence, he went in the difficult place. He wants to strip off things that have been draining away his life and his favor and his blessing upon our lives, but we've yet to see it. That it's a willingness to allow God to strip away things that are draining his full potential off of our lives. That may mean the form of a relationship. That may mean commitments. That may mean habits, that may mean anything, but his desire is for your best. And his desire for your best involves his anointing and his favor and your life in a way that, that many times things that we don't realize are hindering that he wants to strip away. And then finally in verse 6, it says, Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So surely your goodness and your love will follow me all the days of my life. Literally, the, the word that's used is a hunting term. It says your goodness and your love will follow me. The follow me is a hunting term. And follow, it, it sounds like it speaks of a, a hunting down, a tracking down of an individual. Or if a hunter was, was being identified in this way, it's a hunter tracking down his prey. And oftentimes when we, we read it, it'll say, surely your goodness and your love will follow me all the days of my life. Is it almost sounds like wherever I've been, that's where the blessings of God are showing up. 
And I don't know about you, but I don't want God's blessings where I've been. I want them where I'm at now. I want his favor and his blessing and his hand up on my life now, not where I've been. And the way that the psalmist writes it, he says, his goodness and his love will follow me all the days of my life. The more accurate translation is that it will pursue you until it overcomes you. That his, his goodness and his favor and his kindness in your life is aggressive. That his goodness and steadfast love aggressively pursues his people. It's if you live with God's guiding hand upon your life and you have chosen to put Christ first, that it's as if, as if you live with a divine bullseye on your life. That his favor and his goodness and his love and his mercy and his peace will continually be poured over you and over your life and over those who trust in him who are part of you. That it's a willingness to recognize that his goodness and his love will pursue me all the days of my life. That there will be, there every morning that I wake up, his love and his goodness is there. His faithfulness is there. That because God is my shepherd, he still is in the midst of everything. And then it ends with this in verse 6. It says, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I will dwell, I will be established in the house of the Lord forever. The traditional Hebrew text read this way. It says, I shall return to the house of the Lord And that's more of a compressed way of saying, I will come back again and again and again and again and be present in God's presence again and again, finding every single thing that I need. That's why the psalmist says even later in chapter 36, he says, they feast on the abundance of what your presence offers. They, meaning God's children, find fulfillment in everything that he puts in front of them. And friends, for you that are here, each one that's here this morning, I would just remind you that God's presence in your life, in your family, and in your home is an inexhaustible supply of grace and an inexhaustible supply of wisdom, of strength, of peace, of guidance, of hope, of deliverance, of freedom, that he has been and will always be more than enough for everyone who looks for everyone who wants to receive, that he is willing to be more than enough. And so this morning, I'm going to invite you to stand with me and where we will prepare to close. But it all begins with the Lord is my shepherd, allowing him to guide and allowing him to lead, a willingness to trust him in all things. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we thank you that you're with us. We thank you, God, that you are a God who is always more than enough. That in your loving care, you guide us through places we wouldn't choose. That in your loving care, you strip away things in our lives that we don't see as being a lack of benefit of what you're doing in us. And that in your loving care, you're constantly with us. That as we look to you, that we find all the answers for everything that we need. And so, Lord, this morning, in this this moment, we center our hearts solely upon you. And we invite you by your Holy Spirit to do a work in us. I pray in each one of our lives and in my life included that in this moment you would examine and that in this moment you would even show us places, God, where perhaps we haven't trusted or or leaned upon your leading and your guidance in our lives the way that you intend to. And so, Lord, in this moment, we keep our heart before, before you open and responsive to you.